Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today is Dr. Jason Steffen, Associate Professor of Physics at UNLV, who also was a member of the science team for NASA's Kepler mission. Jason, previous guest on the show, is involved with Exoplanets 4 being held in Las Vegas through May 6th and presented by the American Astronomical Society. Extrasolar planets are planets that orbit distant stars. Scientists from around the world, including faculty here from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, are participating in discussions on new findings in the field. For everything about the conference, go to aas.org and you can follow Jason Steffen at Horizons at Twitch TV, as well as Rumble and YouTube, and of course, Twitter at Horizon SCI. And Jason, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Before anything, let's define the American Astronomical Society. What is that society? When did it start and what does it do? So the American Astronomical Society started uh, just over 100 years ago, I think. And it's the professional organization for astronomers throughout the country. So it has something on the order of 10,000 members, five to 10,000 members. Uh, they meet periodically. And uh, one of the programs that they have is a topical conference series, where instead of a gigantic meeting with all astronomers in every field, they do topical conferences on specific disciplines or subdisciplines within it. And the Exoplanets Conference Series is actually a series that's run out of Europe. And I was able to convince them to bring it to the United States. And so it's the Exoplanets Conference Series partnering with the American Astronomical Society to put this on in Las Vegas. Nice. And the fact that you were able to convince them to come not only to the United States, but Las Vegas is a good plus. Yeah, well, there's a lot to see in Europe. And so it would have taken too long, taken a whole career to see all the sites in Europe. And so just coming to Las Vegas, we could see all of Europe all at once. And then we can send <laughs> it back over to the other continent. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and from my understanding of the society, it's very welcoming in the sense that it's not just for quote unquote veteran astronomers or people who are interested in astronomy, but also welcomes novice astronomers. Yeah, there's, uh, there will be a number of people from the media. I have several undergraduate students who will be there presenting some of their work and graduate students. So it's a good mix of everyone from students up through veteran faculty members from prestigious institutions around the world. This conference is actually shaping up to be the largest gathering of exoplanet scientists ever, uh, with over 500 people attending. And they're going to be coming in from all over the world. We have about a third of the people are going to be coming in from Europe. One could imagine that if this were a year or two from now, that we could have almost a thousand people showing up to, to discuss these different findings. But because of travel restrictions coming out of different areas, the attendance was limited, even though it's still going to be the largest conference in the discipline. And how many are coming from UNLV, which is University of Nevada, Las Vegas, for those of you listening from outside of Las Vegas? From UNLV, we probably have about 15 or so people who will be there you know, showcasing their work. We have a few talks. Um, there's both a poster session for people to present. Um, it's almost like a third grade science program where you, you have a poster that outlines the research that you're working on, and there's opportunities to talk with your collaborators and colleagues. And then there are oral presentations where people are giving talks that run also throughout the week. There wasn't enough room to fit everyone on the speaking schedule. We have over 500 people who are planning to attend, and there's only about 100 speaking slots. Yes, otherwise you'd have the entire convention speaking, which never works. Right. Yeah. You mentioned third grade earlier, which is about my education level when it comes to astronomy. The best I can tell you is I know the difference between a refractive telescope and a reflective telescope, because I used to have a refractive telescope of 30 power. I thought I was really great 
you know, I could see the craters in the moon. So I thought that was pretty good. But clearly, we've gone a long way since the days when I had that 30 power telescope. Yeah, we have uh, quite a few really powerful telescopes, both on land and in space. And James Webb just finished its calibration and is ready to take official science runs now. When you started your career, were you surprised how much has changed? If you look at it from now, how much has changed in that world of astronomy? Yeah, there's definitely been quite a bit that's changed. In my own subdiscipline of exoplanets, there were 10 or 11 exoplanets that had been discovered when I started, and now we have 5,000 that have been discovered. There's been you know, just the instruments that have been brought online, the different space missions that have come online. It's really been quite impressive to see the transition from every new planet is an international headline discovery to until you've until you're showcasing 100 planets at once, you know, then it barely crosses the people's yeah, radar. It becomes routine at that point. What is it about exoplanets that makes it interesting for you and then for the field in general? Because again, I mentioned earlier, it's planets that orbit distant stars. So from your point of view, what fascinates you about that? And then in the larger scope, what is it that fascinates astronomers in general about exoplanets? So that's a mixed bag for astronomers in general. So I'll start with myself. I'm interested in understanding how planetary systems form and how planetary systems could have taken different paths depending upon their history. So in our solar system, Jupiter formed far enough away from the sun where ices and things could condense. And the terrestrial planets form interior to that line where all the volatile gases like water, methane, and ammonia were still in a gaseous state. And so they couldn't condense to form the planets. And so we're left with rocky material on the in part, inner parts of the planetary system gaseous material on the outer parts of the planetary system. And that was the standard accepted method for how planets form for hundreds of years, right? This goes, the, our current planet formation theory dates back more than 200 years. But the first exoplanets that were discovered were completely unlike the solar system. And even the majority of solar planetary systems that we've discovered to this point are unlike the solar system. They have planets that are say five or six times the mass of the earth. There's no planet in our solar system that's five times the mass of the earth. They have planets, most of the planets are orbit on 10 to 20 day orbits and Mercury's on a 90 day orbit. These are much closer to their star than Mercury is to the sun. And so they clearly had a different formation pathway. And by understanding how the planets dynamically interact with each other, like how their orbital periods might relate to each other, gives some insight into how they formed, where they formed, if they moved around, how they moved around. So that's the part of the story that interests me the most. Does it also tell us whether there is life on some of these exoplanets based on how they were formed? It certainly can have some implications for the development of life if they form in an environment where they're can retain a lot of atmosphere, like too much atmosphere like Venus has, or if they're an environment that where the chemical composition is different. And so you get different chemistry within the planets themselves. There are a number of people who that is really what they are focusing on is the habitability of different planets and how similar or different are they from the earth? And would they still be habitable under certain conditions? That's not my, that's not my thing. I'm interested in it from an outsider's perspective, but it's not something that I spend much time on. I think in general, though, the population is interested in whether there's life, and it doesn't have to be human life. It can be some sort of life on other planets, but clearly that's more for the public fascination. Yours is much more specialized, but what gives you that passion for this specialty? Where did you discover it? How old were you when you realized this is what I want to do? Oh, I was... Um... 
it was in graduate school when I learned quite a bit about our own solar system. So for example, we know that Neptune formed closer to the sun than it's currently located. And the reason that we know that Neptune formed closer to the sun is because there's evidence of Neptune moving outwards. And that evidence is that there are a number of small objects, Pluto is the most prominent of them, that are trapped in specific orbital configurations relative to Neptune. So they're in mean motion resonance. Neptune orbits three times and Pluto orbits twice. And it was uh, that's a consequence of Neptune migrating outwards and plowing into a ring of debris. And it captures some of that debris in these special orbits. And so that really opened my eyes into what you can learn about the history of a dynamical system, like a planetary system, based upon the relationships between the orbits of the objects in those systems. And so that kind of steered me into this direction of understanding how other planetary systems formed based upon the, the orbital periods and the eccentricities and the, the shapes and properties of the orbits of the planets. You mentioned debris, and clearly with many nations sending up satellites and spaceships, there's debris from that as well. But for exosolar planets, is there debris when you look at these these planets that orbit distant stars, can there, is it, it's not the same kind of debris, but is there debris in general? Yeah, and I should clarify that when I say debris in the solar system, I'm actually not talking about human, like man-made debris. I'm talking about asteroids and comets, things that are left over from the formation, that the little planets that couldn't is I was just the looking at it from them. an Earth perspective because of uh -huh. all the satellites and spaceships going up. There's that debris, but I figured there might be from, as you mentioned, more natural versions of debris in various solar systems. Yeah. So there's collision fragments and things that happen when, as objects bump into each other. So there is undoubtedly going to be similar asteroid belts and things like that in other planetary systems. It's a bit below most of our sensitivity. So I think there's definitely been a planet that's observed to have a ring system around it. And a ring is basically a debris field as well. But I don't know if there's been an exo-asteroid belt or an exo-comet belt that have been discovered. We've seen signatures of debris disks where some of that material falls onto the surface of the central star. So there's some of that, but there hasn't been like direct observation of asteroids or something like that going around a distant planet. It's called extrasolar planets, not extra sun planets or extra star planets. Is there a reason for that? Is it assumed that, that planets will always revolve around a solar entity as opposed to any other kind of? Well, so planet? solar just is referring to our own star. The, so the sun is, the official name is Sol. And so um, these are distant stars. We call them extrasolar planets because they're not, they're planets, but they're not orbiting around our own sun. And so like extragalactic is another term that comes up where we're talking about galaxies that aren't the Milky Way galaxy. Now, are there several different ways to study extrasolar planets? And is that part of the conference that different people come and present different ways of looking at these extrasolar Yeah, exactly. Planets? So there's a variety of ways of detecting extrasolar planets. So I, my specialty has been in the transit method where you look for the planets as they pass in front of their host star and block a portion of the light. So the transit method has been the not I don't mean to brag, but it's been by far the most successful method of finding extrasolar planets. Feel free to brag; it's quite all right. <laughs> the uh, Doppler shift method, where you're looking at the reflex motion of the star, because the star and the planet 
the planets don't orbit the star, they orbit each other about their common center of mass. And so the star actually also moves because of the orbits of the planets. And you can detect the Doppler shift of those stars. And that's been about 20% of the planets have been discovered using that method. And these are complementary methods. If you can do both, then it's that much better. You can look at the gravitational effect of a planet and a star bending the light from a distant object and magnifying it. So using like Einstein's uh, general relativity. Um, there's also direct imaging. There are a few planets that have been discovered with direct imaging. So there are a number of different techniques of discovering the planets, but then once they've been found, there are a number of different techniques of studying the planets. So you can look at the light that reflects off of the atmosphere. You can look at light that transmits through the atmosphere. So as if a planet transits the star, then you're able to actually see the starlight pass through the outer layers of the atmosphere of the planet and put a, its own fingerprint onto the spectrum that you observe. So you can study them, measuring their masses using a variety of different techniques and get some constraints on what they might be made out of, what kind of atmospheres they might have. And so there are a variety of different techniques in addition to just developing computer models and simulating their formation history and simulating their dynamical history and gaining insight based upon the fact that we observe them now in this configuration might imply something about their past. When you're looking at them, and I was going to ask you about computer simulation and using modeling, but the initial study of it, are you reliant on primarily telescopes to figure out what you need to figure out about these extrasolar planets? So all the observations are based on telescopes, but they're different kinds of telescopes. So some of them are, uh, you actually take images. That's not that many of them where you actually take images of extrasolar planets because it's really, really hard to do. There are these spectrographs where you take the light from the star and break it into the constituent colors, and you can identify different chemical signatures in the spectrum of light that you get. The transit method is just counting photons. It's counting how much light is coming from the star, and it doesn't even matter if the picture is any good. In fact, when the Kepler mission flew, they deliberately defocused the, the image. By spreading it out over many pixels, you're able to average over these systematic effects that would make you think that you had seen a planet when, in fact, the telescope just shifted to a slightly less sensitive portion of the camera. Now, clearly, Las Vegas doesn't have a Mount Wilson or any other major facility to observe. So UNLV doesn't have any observing, like no, no scientific observing program. Because of the way technology is today, you could tap into a telescope in another city that has massive capability and be able to look at your monitor and be able to observe as if you were looking through the telescope. Am I correct or wrong? Or Yeah, that's correct. So most telescopes you would build like any real cutting edge professional telescope would be built in Hawaii or in Chile or in Arizona, places that are dry and high and isolated from uh, city lights and things like that. So you wouldn't build one in the Las Vegas area because for one, there's no need to build it here. You, there are other better places to, to put them. And typically what will happen is you build a large telescope and various institutions would go in to purchase the telescope. So Caltech would put in a bunch of money and UNLV would put in a bunch of money and Indiana would put in a bunch of money and all of that would go together. And then each institution would be allocated some fraction of the observing time on that telescope. 
but that observing time is remotely, correct? So yeah, you know, for the most part, it's remote. There are a few telescopes where they have staff that are on site. And so you tell them, this is what I want to observe. But you're watching it from it your office here, for example, at UNLV through some high def monitor. That can happen. So I think for the most part, that will happen, that it will be remote, like remotely controlled, remotely observed. Uh, but there are telescopes where you actually have to be on the mountain in order to do that. And they wouldn't let someone like me touch it. They'd be like, well, <laughs> you tell them what you want to observe. Right. The technician will go in, they'll do their job, and you won't break anything. <laughs> Getting back to the convention, what have been some of the highlights, uh, some of the findings that have struck you as being very important to your field? Well, I think the, well, the first exoplanet discovered, that was only 1995. Um, I should clarify, it's the first exoplanet that was discovered orbiting a star like the sun. Now, let me interrupt for just a second, because you mentioned exoplanet, and I know we've discussed before exoplanets, but there's extra, ex you call it ex exoplanet, and then there's extrasolar planets. So which, are they both the same interchangeable? Yeah, they're both the same. Okay. Uh, it depends on whatever rolls off the tongue most easily within a given sentence. Is, Fair enough. Is what I use. I just wanted to clarify for our audience. Okay. So go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but I wanted yeah, to so, clarify. Yeah. Uh, so the first exoplanet was discovered orbiting a star like the sun in 1995. So the, the discipline is not that old. You know, we've been studying stars for hundreds of years. Um, most recently, some of the biggest findings are coming from an array of telescopes called the ALMA Observatory. So that's the Atacama Large Millimeter Array that's located in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And they take images of the dust that's in planet-forming disks. And so you have a region where there's stars forming, which is also the regions where planets are forming because they happen kind of at the same time. And they're looking at, they get really high-precision images of the stars as they form, and you can see these disks around the stars, and you can see gaps where the planets are orbiting in those gaps, like they're forming in those gaps. And that's been a development that's only like in the last five years. And UNLV has uh, one group in particular that's really heavily involved in modeling and understanding what's going on in these protoplanetary disks that are being observed. So that's a pretty new uh, development in the field. There are a lot new, a lot of new instruments that are coming online. There's two space telescopes that are currently operating to study extrasolar planets, one out of Switzerland and one out of the United States. So the one in Switzerland is called Cheops. The one in the United States is called TESS. There's another mission that's being developed uh, called PLATO. And these are all acronyms. They all mean stuff, but I don't, I, I would be, I'd be making stuff up if I tried to <laughs> come up with what they are. And so there's a lot of those kinds of instruments that are coming online. There's some new measurements of so James Webb Space Telescope, for example, has come online, and that is an instrument that you would use to study the composition of the atmospheres of a number of planets. So there's going to be a lot more planetary characterization. So rather than characterizing a system of planets, you're like, now we're picking specific planets within these systems and trying to understand what they're made out of and what's happening, how they're interacting with their host star. So that's uh, there's a lot of stuff that will be coming out in the next few years from James Webb and from these other space telescopes. A lot of new discoveries, both about systems as a whole and also about individual planets within those systems. When you look at the discoveries and the findings, especially that come about because of this conference, do you try to apply these findings to the larger public? In other words, if someone came up to you and say, okay, this is all very interesting, but how does it impact on 
society itself, or how does it impact on individuals in society? What does that knowledge, what does that insight do? Do you have a ready answer for that, or have you still been thinking about that over the years? So I encourage everyone to have a ready answer, but it does depend a little bit on what your audience is. So if your well, audience let's, let's is someone it's who's a general public, well, so the general public also has different motivations. So you may have someone who's really interested in understanding space in general, like they, that's their passion. And so they would might appreciate that, you know, by understanding how these distant planetary systems form, we understand our own history. We can compare these planetary systems to our own and say, well, these are the paths less traveled by that we did or didn't take. You know, are we actually that rare? Is Earth rare or is Earth pretty common? We still don't have the answer to that question. Where if you were to say, you know, someone who's working in or who, who cares about making sure that we have a healthy technical economy, then you can say, well, one of the things that this does is it trains, the, it provides a skilled workforce who are used to developing new software, testing new theories out, answering questions that have never been answered before. And the majority of people who work in, in astronomy actually don't stay in astronomy. The majority of them go through graduate school or even just undergraduate school, and then they get turned out into the workforce and their skills get applied to other problems that might be more pressing on society. Like medical imaging is one common area where astronomers end up because they're used to working with computer images. And so they can recreate, you know, someone's heart when you take a CT scan of it or something like that. There are a number of scientists who go into data science as well, because they're used to studying data from large astronomical surveys. And so they develop those skills. Uh, another thing that I, you know, also, again, depending on the audience, I'll say astronomy is a gateway drug that brings people into STEM fields. And so they may be interested in astronomy while they're younger. And then as they get older, they go into engineering or they go into computer science or something like that because of that initial inspiration that came from seeing pictures of Hubble or watching someone land on the moon or understanding or hearing a talk about extrasolar planets. I'll give an example is there's someone who I know now interviewed me when she was an eighth grader. I gave a public lecture in a small college on the edge of Iowa. And she came up and asked some questions. She's an eighth grader. I'd want to interview you for my science project. And now she works at Ball Aerospace and has been working on the James Webb Space Telescope. You know, and that came from just this one happenstance interaction at a talk at a small liberal arts college. So that kind of uh, inspiration can bring people into technical fields that we need in our society, right? We need smart people who are working in technical areas to address how do you feed 8 billion people? And so astronomy can serve as a means to funnel people into those disciplines. I like that concept of the gateway where you start there, but then you can go so many different directions. Makes a lot of sense. What does the future look like with the study of extrasolar planets? Is it accelerating because of the technology that's accelerating and the knowledge that's accelerating? Does the future look bright for the study of extrasolar planets? And are there new questions that develop as a result of your field finding more and more information? That's a good question. I think it's probably best to say that the discipline as a whole is diversifying, where now that we've discovered a large sample of planets, so Kepler was really when things ramped up. We went from knowing about a few hundred, I mean, several hundred planets to several thousand planets. And now we have a lot of things that we can study in more detail. And so we need to bring instruments to bear on, 
a lot of the planets we've already discovered or that we're discovering now. So it's we've shifted away from the discovery phase of the discipline into one. It's not that there aren't still new planet discoveries being made, but that's not where the headlines are grabbed. The headlines come from, oh, now that we've seen this planet, we've detected oxygen in the atmosphere or ozone, or we've seen water vapor or whatever. Those are the kinds of things that are going to be the major headlines of the future. And so the field, now that it has kind of this solid sample of systems to study, and we kind of know what to expect in in the new discoveries in the future, as far as like identifying new planetary systems, now the discipline is spreading out to characterizing the atmospheres, characterizing the composition, shifting to other ways of measuring the properties of the host star. And so in that regard, I don't know if I would call that accelerating, but it's certainly the field is continuing to grow and it's growing into new areas that weren't part of its original purview. Um, I'll give you an example. So when the first extrasolar planets were discovered, so NASA is divided into several divisions. Uh, There's the planetary science division. There's the astrophysics division. There's the heliophysics division. And they all study, well, one of them studies the sun. One of them studies astrophysics. One of them studies the planets in the solar system. So the missions to Mars, the missions to Jupiter, these are all under the planetary science division where studying stars and galaxies and stuff like that is under the astrophysics division. Well, early on, all extrasolar planets were studied under the astrophysics division because they were all detected using stellar astronomy measurement techniques. And it's only been in the last few years that the planetary science division has gotten also into the discipline of studying extrasolar planets. You would think um, just coming in from the outside that it would be obvious that that would be the right group of people to be studying these things, but it wasn't the case for decades that that happened, like two decades. It sounds as if you're optimistic about the future for the study of extrasolar planets. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of work that remains to be done in the discipline. There are lots and lots of unanswered questions that are yet to be addressed. And you're going to be addressing some of those. I'll be addressing some of them. My students will be addressing some of them. I will pretend that I did all the work um, <laughs> when I present my this at conferences. Um, but there's really, there's a lot of unanswered questions and there's a lot of new instruments coming online that will help us answer some of those questions. So there's a fair amount of future ahead in, in this discipline. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Dr. Jason Steffen. He's Associate Professor of Physics at UNLV. He's involved with Exoplanets 4 being held in Las Vegas through May 6th and presented by the American Astronomical Society. For everything about the conference, go to aas.org, and you can follow Jason Steffen at Horizons, at Twitch TV, as well as Rumble and YouTube, and of course, Twitter at Horizon SCI. Jason, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.